Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We've been doing a series, and next week we're going to culminate on Easter Sunday. We're going to still be talking about the blood, but we're going to receive communion as a body. So I want to encourage you, get your, uh, have, some, have some juice, some wine, some bread uh, ready, and we're going to take communion together as a body across the, across the region, and I believe God's going to visit us in that, and we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus was the Passover lamb and that the pestilence had to pass over over the people of Israel and it passes over us. So we're going to we're going to do that next week. Now, we're going to continue in our in this vein. The last few weeks what we've been talking about is how the blood of Jesus has an application in three spheres. There's an application towards heaven, there's an application towards earth, and there's an application towards hell. Or it, the blood of Jesus answers the demand of God. It satisfies God's justice. So it, it solves our greatest problem, which is the divine problem. I said last week that your biggest problem is God. If you don't solve that problem, you, all your other problems pale in comparison. And so the number one problem we need to solve is the problem of God. The blood of Jesus also solves the human problem. It's, it deals with our guilty conscience. And so uh, we looked at how there, is, there are two forms of guilt that the blood solves. The blood solves legal guilt, our guilt before heaven, uh, and then it solves psychological guilt, the guilt that we carry towards ourselves. And if we don't get that resolved, then we'll never be able to engage the third sphere, which is using the blood of Jesus as a weapon towards hell. And so we're going to continue in that vein this morning. I want to read a few verses to you, and uh, we're just going to need the grace of God to know where to jump in. There's a whole lot of verses running through my head. So let's, let's begin in Hebrews chapter 10, and let's look at verse Verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And so the writer of Hebrews uses this phrase, our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience. Now that is a very unique uh, phrase that is taken right out of the Old Testament. We looked at this last week, touched on this, that there's a difference in the Old Covenant between the shed blood and the sprinkled blood. The same, uh, it remains so in the New Covenant. There's a difference between the shed blood and the sprinkled blood. The shed blood ha is for God. The shed blood has to do with solving the, the problem of legal guilt. There was justice demand demanded that blood be shed. But then there's the sprinkling of blood. So the, the shedding of blood was to satisfy our legal guilt. It really had to do with justification. It had to do with making us righteous before God. Uh, but the sprinkled blood is something that you and I do. The shed blood was the offering of the sacrifice. The sprinkling of blood is the application 
application of the sacrifice or applying the blood of God, the blood of Jesus to our own lives. If you look in the Old Testament, the blood was sprinkled on the priests to sanctify them. It was sprinkled on the whole nation of Israel when Moses was giving the law. It was also sprinkled on the law and it, and it was sprinkled on the elements of the temple because that was the way in which things were or sanctified or set apart unto God. And the same is true of you and I. Now, theologically speaking, justification is us being made righteous before God in a legal way. God uh, accepts us based on the sacrifice of Jesus. But sanctification has to do with bringing our living condition up to our legal position. And so God declares us righteous but then the Spirit goes to work to work in us the righteousness of God so that our behavior lives up to our legal position. And so God is, that's why in Hebrews it talks about they who are righteous are being made holy. We are once and for all made holy, but we're being perfected. And there's these two tenses. And so God is working in us to bring us up to that, that, uh, that standard of behavior. And so we're both holy and being made holy. This being made holy begins with the sprinkling of the blood. And that's why it's so crucial for you and I to understand how to use the blood. Now, there are a lot of things that we have in our relationship with God that often we don't understand and therefore we cannot leverage to the full extent that we should. That's why in Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul doesn't pray for us to receive more other than a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know what we already have. Much of the Christian life is simply us unpacking for the rest of eternity what God gave us in the cross. And so to the extent that we know it is to the extent that we can live it. And that's why all through scripture you see this theme that uh, literally that in order to grow, you have to grow in your know. <laughs> uh, Peter puts it this way, grace and peace be unto you through your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the substance of the Christian life. It's how you get saved. It's how you grow in God. It's the substance of the calling. Paul said that the, he was an apostle by the grace of God. But the avenue through which we receive this, this empowerment, this grace of God, that is the power to live the Christian life. It's both the desire to live for God and the power to pull it off. That's what grace is. The, the avenue through which we receive this grace is knowledge. So in other words, in, you, in order for you to grow in grace, you've got to grow in your knowledge. So that's why we grow, we study the word, we have revelation. God is unpacking that original gift that he gave us at Calvary. And so it's crucial that we grow in our knowledge. Because if you don't know what you have, you will not be able to live in the good of it. And so the enemy has a vested interest in either confusing you or keeping you in ignorance. 
He has a vested interest in keeping you from desiring to grow in grace, to grow in your knowledge, to grow in your understanding. One of the major elements of maturity, one of the major marks of maturity, one of the major marks of spiritual health is simply a spiritual curiosity, a hunger, a desire to know and to understand. And God wants to grace us with a spirit of wisdom and revelation. But one of the qualifications for that spirit of wisdom and revelation is hunger. We see this throughout scripture. In Matthew 13, where Jesus is teaching on the parables and the disciples come to him and said, Lord, what does this mean? He begins to tell them, he said, I teach in parables so that others won't understand, but the the knowledge of the kingdom has been given unto you, the mysteries of the kingdom. Well, they had just told him, we don't understand what you're saying, but yet Jesus said, the mysteries of the kingdom are given to you. Why? And how, how can that be if they're just as clueless as the rest of the crowd? Well, it's because they stuck around after the message and said, Jesus, please explain to us. We are not satisfied to merely hear messages. We're not satisfied to merely read the word. We want to understand. And it's to those that Jesus would say, to you, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdoms have been given unto you. And so that hunger, that desire, that, that pressing in, that, that not being willing to just listen and not understand, but that thing that presses in and continues to say, God, I've got to understand this thing. That is one of the primary qualifications for wisdom and revelation because God himself functions by a principle. He will not throw his pearls before those who have no value system to appreciate it. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom are too precious to be given to people who don't appreciate that knowledge. And one of the ways that you prove your appreciation is your pursuit. You're staying in that pocket. You're you're asking, you keep on asking. You seek and you keep on seeking. You knock and you keep on knocking. And it's to those that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom will be given. Another qualification, by the way, is purity of heart. Not just that you're hungry, but you're hungry for the right reasons. You want to use it for his glory and not your own. And so James tells us that we can ask for wisdom and God will give it to us. But then he goes on later in his book and he says, this wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure. In other words, your motives have to be right when you're asking for wisdom. Because if you are using it to build your own kingdom, to bring glory to yourself, you shut down wisdom and you will end up with what James defines as worldly wisdom. He says, this wisdom is not from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. It's, it's made of selfish ambition and bitter envy. It's that, that desire to shine above the rest. And so we need to be hungry for the things of God. We want to know how to utilize the things of God, but we also want to purify our hearts and say, God, I want to use it for your glory. And when you are hungry and you are pure in heart, and James tells you, purify your own heart. It's not that God purifies your heart. He leaves that to you to admit and to say, God, Lord, there's, there's still selfish ambition in me. He says, don't boast about her to deny the truth. We admit it before God and we say, God, I want my heart pure. I want to want it for the right reasons. And God will begin that process. He'll cooperate with you 
to purify your heart so that you can qualify for the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. I'm telling you, knowledge in the kingdom is the key to success in life. God longs to give us wisdom. Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the secret to wealth. It's the secret to uh, prosperity. But the, the, the precursor is that the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because wisdom is the thing that gives you those things. And so we want to be hungry for the things of God. And it's, it, I have this, just this burden that we as a people, as a church, understand how the blood of Jesus works. If you don't understand the blood, you cannot use the blood. There are a lot of believers who stand in a measure of what the blood has purchased for them. They stand in that first tier of what the blood has purchased, and that is they've been made righteous before God. God has settled the issue between he and his son. His son entered into covenant and cut it with the father. And you and I enter in to that, the goodness. We enter into justice. Uh, we're justified, and therefore heaven is our home, but we remain largely unfruitful in life. Our eternity is settled, but our life is a mess because we don't know how to use the second phase or the second tier or the second sphere where the blood is applied. And that is it's applied to the doorposts of our own heart. We've got to learn that when we understand how the blood of Jesus satisfies the Father, then that shed blood can become the sprinkled blood that that uh, satisfies or, or cleanses our conscience. Let me read you another verse on this same thing of the, the cleansing of our conscience. Uh, Colossians. Listen to what it says here. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 9, for Christ in the full, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given the fullness of Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised and putting off the sinful nature, not the circumcision done with hands by men, or the circumcision done by but the circumcision with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, uh, who was raised from the dead. When you were dead. In your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ, having forgiven us of all our sins, having canceled the written code and its regulations that was written against us and stood opposed to us. He took it and nailed it to the cross, having disarmed all the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So he stripped the enemy, he made a public spectacle, he disarmed the enemy. What is the enemy's primary weapon that he uses against us? It's accusation. That's why in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says they overcame him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life unto the death. That the blood of Christ actually becomes a weapon we use against the enemy when we know how to apply it to our heart. Let me read you another verse in Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 15 because this is really Jesus' resume. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then halfway through this resume, it begins to talk about his part in redemption. The first half was talking about his role, his credentials on his resume, his credentials in creation. Now it's going to unpack his credentials in redemption. Listen to what it says. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is, the he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And now this is a fascinating verse, and God willing, we'll get to this before we close this morning. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. So Jesus is reconciling all things, not just people, but all things, and not just all things on the earth, but even all things in the heavens through his blood. The blood of Jesus is working a reconciliation even with things in the heavenly realms. There was a mass rebellion, not just in the heart of man, but all of creation fell, and that rebellion didn't begin with man. It began with Satan, and there was a, a fall in the heavenly realms. And through the blood of Jesus, what he did on the cross, he didn't only reconcile man to himself, he's reconciling all of creation and even reconciling things in the heavenly realms. It's a fascinating thing. And before we close this morning, we'll get into that. Now listen to what it says here in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you in his sight without blemish, free from accusation, Without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. He is going to present you free from accusation. How does he do that? Through the sprinkling of his blood. Our, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, the book of Hebrews says. And so when we understand how the blood of Jesus satisfies God, we can then begin to apply it to our heart. So in review, how does the blood of Jesus satisfy God? Because in Christ's blood is Christ's life. According to Luke, I mean uh, Leviticus, I want to say it's chapter 17, verse 11. The life is in the blood. The life that is in Jesus' blood is a life that when Jesus began his ministry, he said this, I must fulfill all of righteousness. At the end of his ministry, he said this, it is finished. 
He fulfilled all of righteousness. He sealed the deal, gave, his, gave up his life, and the life that was in that blood was a life that was perfected, completed. Hebrews says that once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus was perfected, Hebrews chapter 2 says, or Hebrews chapter 5, by the things he suffered. And so Jesus was in a process of being perfected. He brought the image of God stamped upon his nature to completion, and he offered up that life spotless. Not just that he had not done the wrong things, but he had also done the right things, and he offered that life up to God. And so therefore, God could look at that blood as the high priest would walk in once a year and present the blood of the lamb. Jesus, according to Hebrews 9, walked into the very throne room of heaven with his blood and presented it to the Father, and the Father could say, I'm satisfied. My dream to have a man made in my own image is satisfied. It's been completed. And so Jesus entered by the blood of the lamb. And now a way has been forged for you and I so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because our heart has been cleansed of a guilty conscience. How does that work? Well, the blood that satisfies God can then be used to cleanse ourselves of a guilty conscience. If we understand how the blood of Jesus satisfies the Father, then we can begin to retrain our minds. Scripture says that we were enemy, enemies with God in our minds because of a guilty conscience. Our mind was locked on our sin. And, and so in so doing, we, we were outside the, the throne room living with a guilty conscience. We cleanse our conscience by realizing that we too, just like Jesus entered by by his blood, you and I enter by the blood of the Lamb. Now, I've said this the last few weeks, but I can't stress it enough. When I was a young believer, I lived in condemnation. And it's because I was very sincere. I wanted to live for God. I had lived a very sinful life prior to coming to the Lord. And in my mind, I grasped the fact that I was made righteous by what Jesus did at Calvary. The problem was I knew I was justified by his grace, but I believed that from then on I had to produce this righteous life on my own. And so I had this idea that God gave me a second chance, but I was on my own to, to pull this thing off. And I remember one day after uh, I'd been saved probably two months, I was mowing a lawn for Teen Challenge and something happened. I don't remember what happened, but it made me mad. And under my breath, I said a curse word. And I remember the condemnation that came over me. And I remember feeling like, I can never live this life. And in my mind, I actually said to the Lord, I said, God, you've given me a new life and now I marred it. I put a mark on it. Looking back, that seems so ludicrous to me now. But it was, it was a picture into how I had framed the Christian life and how it worked. I was saved by grace, but I was sanctified by my own good works. Paul addresses this very mindset in Galatians. He said, you were made righteous by the Spirit. Do you think that you have to be sanctified and made holy? You're going to live this Christian life on your own? 
He, he understood and he was trying to stress to the Galatians, listen, the Christian life is from grace, from beginning to end by grace. It was by the spirit, by grace, beginning to the end. And so God began to train me that I cannot be righteous on my own. And again, it's, it's the picture that Paul had to go through his own lesson in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Paul had a revelation that he was dead in Christ. But yet in Romans 7, he was struggling. He said, what I want to do, I don't do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, some teachers talk about that as Paul's experience before he was saved. I don't believe that. And this is why. Because Paul, in looking to his pre-conversion years in Philippians, said, according to the law, I was spotless. I was blameless. Paul had not had his conscience awakened by God and so therefore he was self-righteous before he got saved he wasn't convicted he felt he was blameless before the law it wasn't until after he was saved every little thing he did condemned him because his conscience was made alive and because he didn't have a grasp of the gospel the fullness of the gospel what he wanted to do he didn't do what he didn't want to do he did and that 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 uh, condemnation fueled the, actually fueled the sin nature. It caused him to even be more sinful. And he cried out to God and he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? Blessed be Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he burst into Romans chapter eight. And it was by the spirit, he said, we, are, we bring forth righteous work. By the spirit, we're made righteous. So Romans six was the proposition, you are dead. Romans 7 is the opposition. I'm still living like a fleshly man. And Romans 7 is the acquisition. It's by the Spirit that we seize the righteous life. But the threshold of Romans 8 was, there is therefore no condemnation. Our hearts have to be sprinkled with blood. We have to have our hearts cleansed of a guilty conscience. Because if you live in guilt before God, you will fulfill the lusts of your flesh. Romans 8 verse 4, it says, He who is mindful of the flesh walks after the flesh. But he who is mindful of the things of the Spirit walks after the Spirit. In other words, what your mind is occupied with is the nature that you will live out. And condemnation, accusation, is the manner in which the enemy locks your mind on the things of the flesh. Paul doesn't say he's going to lock your mind on the things of the flesh in such a way as I want to do those things. Paul said, what I, want, what I don't want to do, I do. And what I don't want to do, I do. Why? Because his mind, through accusation and guilt, was locked on the wrong thing. And so when we're living with guilt, we look at things all the time. We're looking at the things of the flesh. And so we follow after those things. Our mind is locked on it. And the way that God frees us from that, the foundation of holy living, the foundation of, of growth and maturity, the foundation of being free from the sins of the flesh is having your heart sprinkled so that you are cleansed from a guilty conscience. If you do not know how to apply the blood that satisfied the Father and apply it to your own heart so that it satisfies that internal demand that you have for justice and righteousness, 
then you will never live free from sin. And the Lord loves you enough that he will allow you to continue to fall until you throw yourself on him like Paul did and said, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see the same thing in the the life of of, uh, Peter. Years ago, that same period of time where God was teaching me about the blood and I was just coming out of about a three to four year period of just living in despair and crying out to God and trying to be righteous and trying to live right and, and trying to fast more and pray more and read the word more. And the more I would do, it was like my, my efforts actually fueled the wrong things and I was just crying out to God in despair. During that season, the Lord began to speak to me about the blood. And it was during that same time he gave me a message. I, I preached it all over uh, for several years. I would preach this message and it was, here was the message. It was about Peter's life, the receiving of his call, the experience of his fall and the surrender of his all. And the title of that message that I used to preach so often was Peter's preparation for Pentecost. The way God pre- prepared Peter To be filled with the Spirit was to first bring him to the end of himself. It's the same experience that Paul had in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Peter received a call. Peter, you follow and I will make you. But Peter didn't see the need to be made. He was a self-made man. He thought he could do this thing on his own. So at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus looked at him with compassion and said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I'm praying for you. And Peter said, never. You worry about these other guys. You don't have to worry about me. Peter was still confident in his flesh. And the Lord had to allow him to crash and burn until he was thoroughly Uh, cured of any confidence he would have in his own flesh. And so Peter experienced the fall. It's an interesting phrase when it says that Peter was following Jesus at a distance when when Jesus had been arrested. And it's really a, a poetic way that the gospel writer is communicating to us the nature of Peter's relationship with Jesus. He followed at a distance. Yes, it was because he didn't want to be associated with him, but it was also indicative of this this way that Peter walked with him because those who have confidence in their own flesh will follow at a distance. And Peter ended up denying him. And it's it's a, a, a... just a heartbreaking passage. Peter denied him. And on the third time, it says when Peter cursed and he said, I don't know Jesus. I don't know that man. Somehow that the, Jesus was in the vicinity because Jesus' eye caught Peter's and he looked at him and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And it says that in John 21, that G- Peter said, I'm going fishing. And he asked the other disciples, do you want to go with me? You see, Peter had not given up on Jesus. By this time in John 20, Jesus was already resurrected. It wasn't that he gave up on Jesus and said, I don't believe this gospel. In fact, it was bigger than he thought. Now his, his king had been crucified and now he's resurrected. Peter was giving up on Peter. Peter had, in his own mind, disqualified himself to live for God, disqualified himself for ministry. And so Peter had gone back. He had backslidden. He had gone back to what he had done before. He said, I'm going fishing. And in John 21, Jesus 
makes a meal on, a John, on, the, on the shoreline. It's a beautiful thing. What does Jesus do when, we, when one of his disciples deny him? He makes him a meal. So Peter's out fishing, and, and it says they, they didn't catch anything, and all of a sudden, the man on the shore, he didn't recognize him. Jesus was in a different form now. Just like Mary didn't at first recognize the, the resurrected Christ. But Jesus says to him, throw your net over to the other side. And when he did, it says the boatload was such that the boat, it, 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 the nets almost began to break. And Peter said, it's the Lord. And it says he grabbed his cloak and he jumped into the water and began to run to Jesus. You see, there was something in Jesus and Peter, even though he knew in his heart he had failed him, there was this hunger to be with him. There was this hunger. It wasn't that Peter had given up on Jesus. Peter had given up on Peter. And that was a necessary thing. It was a painful message. It was a painful school to go through, but it's one that every one of us have to go through. Paul went through it, Peter went through it, and you have to go through it. I have to go through it. I've been through it. And so Peter jumps, he puts his cloak on, and it's indicative. It's, it's a poetic way. It's a symbolic way of saying Peter couldn't help himself. He grabbed that mantle. He put it back on him, and he ran to Jesus, and they sat around the fire. And Jesus asked Peter three times an interesting question. He said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, there's a lot of speculation. Was he talking about fish? Was he talking about the other disciples? The important thing is the question he asked him. He said, Peter, do you agape me more than these? And Peter's answer was very insightful. If you look in the original language, Peter says, yes, Lord, I phileo you more than these. You see, Jesus was saying, Peter, do you have the God kind of love, that I'll die for you kind of love? Are you committed to the end? And Peter said, Lord, you know, I got, a, I got an affection for you. That's all I can claim. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You see, Peter needed a, a, an accurate assessment of his own ability to follow Jesus. His heart had been hooked by affection, but without the spirit, without the power of God, Peter said, Lord, I can't even, I can't even walk. I can't die for you. I've already proven that, but I got an affection. And the Lord said, that's good enough. I can work with that. I'm going to build on that. Feed my sheep. They ate some more, and Jesus looked up again and said, Peter, do you agape me more than you, these? And Peter said again, Jesus, you know I phileo you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then it says a third time, and if you look it up in the original Greek, the original text, the third time even Jesus uses the word phileo, that lesser kind of love. And he said, Peter, do you phileo me? And it says in the text that this time Peter was hurt because Jesus would ask him a third time. But it's because Jesus was even questioning that. And on that one, Peter stood his ground and he said, Lord, you know all things. You know I have a brotherly affection. You know I have, I have this love, this desire. I, I have this affection for you. And the Lord said, Peter, 
feed my sheep. He said, when you were younger, you went where you wanted to go. But when you were older, someone else will put your cloak upon you and take you where you do not want to go. What he was saying is, Peter, there's, I'm going to build in you because you see yourself properly. You realize this is going to have to be the work of God in you. I'm going to build in you the kind of commitment that will come hell or high water. I will follow you. Peter would be martyred. He would become the man that would stand to the end that could say, Lord, I agape you. God did that work in him. But the, the essential foundation was Peter had to be cured of trusting Peter. Peter didn't give up on Jesus. Peter gave up on Peter. And God has to bring us to the end of ourself. You can never be made righteous on your own. If you are sincere about following God, God will bring you into seasons where he will cause you to be disillusioned with your own ability to follow him apart from him. And it will throw you on him. There's an old saying, never trust a man without a limp. It's that thing of a man who's wrestled with God and, and, and Jacob who, who was a deceiver and wrestled with God and God touched his hip and knocked his hip out of joint. And it says in Hebrews that Jacob from then on, he worshiped as he leaned. There's that thing in God that he has to cripple us in our ability to walk on our own. And we trust him. And those are the kind of people that God can use. The foundation of holy living is having your conscience cleansed, your heart cleansed of a guilty conscience, of sprinkling the blood. And what that means is you know you've come to the end of yourself. As long as you are trying to approach God based on your own righteousness, your own ability, one of the indications you're doing that is when you fall, when you stumble, when you, when you do something you shouldn't do or you don't do something you should do, that you feel like you got to spend some time in the penalty blocks. You feel like, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to I'm not gonna go in and worship. I'm not going to go into God's presence. I'm going to spend some time in the penalty box and then I can, be, I can approach him later on as if you're earning that right. As long as you trust in yourself, God can't build that foundation upon which he begins to build that holy life. But when you've come to the end of yourself and you learn that that sprinkled blood can apply, be applied to your heart, and when you fall, you come boldly before the throne of grace and you say, God, the one thing that I've just proven is what you've always said. Apart from you, I can do nothing. And Lord, I just, I come, I come before you. I don't have a righteous, perfect life to present to you outside of the blood. But because of the blood, I come boldly before your throne of grace. Because what's in this life has satisfied every righteous requirement you have for me. And you enter by the blood of the Lamb. Once that is settled in your life, you can begin to move into the third sphere of utilizing the blood. And that is the blood as a weapon that not only undoes the, the, the work of the enemy in your life, it begins to do, undo the work of the enemy in the world, literally in the spiritual realm. You see, when you understand how it satisfies God, it, it, it solves the divine problem, then you understand you can begin to apply it to your heart. The shed blood becomes the sprinkled blood, but then the sprinkled blood literally becomes a weapon, the wielded blood that we use against 
the enemy to undo his works. Now we see that verse in in Colossians. Let's read that again. To me, it's fascinating. I remember years ago reading this verse and it just captured my imagination. I was so intrigued. I'd never heard anybody preach on this. Matter of fact, uh, when my wife was in labor with my son, Evan, I was studying this passage. Probably not the most compassionate thing to do. Sorry, Kath. But God really spoke to me out of this passage when Evan was discovering America. Look at verse 19 again of Colossians chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself. To bring back, literally that word means to bring back into harmony that to that something that previously was in harmony. He's going to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Literally, it's, it's a plural word, the things in the heavens. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Removing the hostility is what that, that word peace means. So literally, he's going to bring back into harmony. We see this same idea in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul, if you get into Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians and Colossians were written at the same time. They're both prison epistles, rather. They were written in prison and sent out to the churches. And it possesses some of the richest theology. And it shows us that God's plan is so much bigger than merely getting some people saved. It's so much bigger than merely getting people to say the sinner's prayer so he can populate heaven someday in the sweet by and by. Literally, God is reconciling all of creation unto himself. And he's doing it through the blood of Jesus. How does he do that? What does that mean? How is he reconciling things in the heavens through the blood of Jesus? Well, let's read that verse in Colossians again, because this has something to do with it. When Paul talks in Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. He says that he took the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. It's talking about the law. Now, God did not do away with the law. He fulfilled the law and he did away with us. Now, it's a passage that really gives us an understanding of what, how God really operated or interacted with the law is Romans chapter 7. And a lot of people interpret this wrong. In Romans chapter 7, at the beginning of that passage, it talks about, there, there was a, uh, it gives the picture of a woman that's married to a man. We're married to the law and that we can't 
live up to the righteous requirements. Let's turn there so we can read this for ourselves here. And uh, because this is an important part of us understanding. Because if we don't understand how God interacts with the law, we set ourselves up either for self-righteousness on the one hand or for condemnation on the other hand. Romans chapter seven, listen to what he says. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. So catch that. The law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. So what was God's answer to the problem of the law? He's gonna tell us. Verse two, for example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. The picture is this. We, we say our wedding vows and we say, till death do us part. We enter into this covenant and this covenant has a time frame. And that time frame is that it's over when we die. When our lives expire, the covenant with our spouse expires. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law. So here's the picture. We are the woman. The law was our master, our covenant partner, and the law had these righteous requirements. The problem was not with the law. Paul will show us this in Romans chapter 8. He said what the law, the law was powerless to do, comma, in that it was weakened by our sinful nature. So the weakness of the law was us, not the law itself. The problem in this relationship, this marriage, is not our husband, it's us. We are the bride. We're married to this, this perfect spouse that has perfect standards. And we're bound to him. And it's like a woman who lives with a man who has these perfect demands and she can't live up to the righteous demands of the law. And she lives under condemnation. She's always disappointing her husband. It's a miserable marriage because of her weakness and his standard. And it says, but she can't marry another. We can't marry Christ. We can't enter into another covenant because we're, mar we're, we're in covenant till death do us part. Now, a lot of people think that what this, this passage teaches is that the law was crucified, but it wasn't. What was crucified is us. In Christ, we died with him. And so in dying with him, because it says in the very next verse, listen to what it says. Verse three, so then if she marries another man, uh, or I mean, verse four, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. So we were like a wife that's married to a taskmaster and we look over and there's our, our neighbor. He's a really sweet guy. He, his, his life is as perfect as the law, but yet he's merciful and we know that he would help us live up to the righteous requirements, but we're still married. So what was the solution? We died. And in dying, we were released from that covenant. We were crucified with Christ. And being resurrected with him, we were free to marry another. We were free to marry Christ. 
remember years ago reading a story about a woman who was married to a man and, and uh, he, was, he was just, he was very harsh with her and, and uh, he ended up passing away and it was just a miserable marriage and she ended up getting remarried and she married a wonderful man and one day as she was vacuuming out the couch that she used to ha- own with her previous, her previous husband, the one that had deceased. She was vacuuming between the, the, the uh, cushions and a little piece of paper got sucked up into the vacuum cleaner. She pulled it out and as she read it, she began to weep because what it was was a list of what her husband was telling her she had to get done. He would actually leave her lists. Wonder how that worked out for him. Gentlemen, don't ever do that. So she's, she's reading the list, and the reason she cried was not out of bitterness towards her previous husband, but out of gratitude because she realized, you know what? All these things I do, but not because I have to, but because I want to, because I so love the man that I'm now married to. What we once did by obligation, we now do by inspiration because of love, and it flows. The works, faith Without works is dead, but faith works by love. And so it's the, that, that love, that, we, that communion, that relationship that begins to produce the righteous requirements of the law. Romans chapter 8, it says that what, the, what we were powerless to do, God did for us. By, making, by Jesus dying for us, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law so that they will now be met in us who walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. So it's not that we obey the, the righteous requirement. It's not that we're reading the law and saying, okay, this is what I do. This is what I do next. It's that out of love, we fulfill the righteous requirements. We keep in step with the Spirit. And as we keep in step with the Spirit, we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. It's the clear message of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, which begins with, there is therefore no condemnation. And so we've got to settle this issue of condemnation. Once we settle it, then we can stay in communion with him. We begin to live in righteousness. We live, we abide in him. We're living in relationship with him. And the fruit of that relationship begins to happen. Trees don't try to produce fruit. You don't go to an apple orchard and see them grunting and groaning, buckled over. All of a sudden, they're not trying to produce fruit. It is the natural process of the, the branch's relationship with the root. And so as there's a relationship, the life-giving sap flows from the root into the branch and fruit happens. And it's the same way with the Christian life. The fruit of the Spirit is not the fruit of Dave trying to be a good person. It's not the fruit of the believer really trying hard. It is actually the fruit of the Spirit manifesting through me because I'm walking in relationship with him. And the one way the enemy will sever that relationship is through condemnation and accusation. So this is why it's so crucial. The beginning of us using the weapon of the blood Towards the enemy. We read it in Revelation chapter 12 that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. The first way that we use that weapon towards the enemy is to protect our own heart. 
We protect our heart against accusation. Let's turn to that passage in Revelation chapter 12. Matter of fact, I just saw this little verse. Let me read this one to you. Look at this is this is on our way to Revelation. We're passing through First John, chapter three, verse twenty-one. Listen to this, dear friends. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive from Him everything we ask because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. If our hearts do not condemn us. There's two things that are going to happen. We have confidence before God and we will obey his commands. The key is getting out from underneath condemnation. And the way to do so is understand that the blood is the foundation that answers to God for the righteousness he requires of you. And once that is settled, then the fruit of the spirit begins to manifest in your life. You begin to live a righteous life. Look at chapter 12 of Revelation Verse 7, this is the context of that famous verse of us overcoming the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. It's interesting, you could go way back into the beginning of verse 12 or chapter 12. We don't have the, the time, but if you look back there later today, I think you'd enjoy looking at the, this symbolic picture of, of uh, the church uh, and overcoming the enemy. Look at uh, verse 7. There was a war in the heavens. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Isn't that interesting? There's a battle in the heavens. And this is talking. Now, there, there's, depending on your eschatology and how you interpret the book of Revelation... But I'm telling you that this is talking, this element of the book of Revelation, whatever your position has not happened yet because Ephesians tells us that there are these principalities and powers in heavenly realms. But John is telling us there's coming a time before Jesus returns, before this whole thing called human history wraps up, where the enemy will actually be displaced out of the heavens and will be sentenced to the earth. Listen to what he says. And there was a war in the heavens. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Listen to what it says. For the accuser of our brother, brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the, the devil has gone down to you. He, has, he was filled with fury because he knows his time is short. This goes back to those of you who have been a part of Heartland for some time. A couple of years ago, we did a series on, uh, based on an encounter I had with the Lord here during prayer one night. And it, uh, the Lord spoke to me out of Ephesians. And he, he showed me a vision of, 
uh, these spheres in the, in the, in, up in the air. There were these giant spheres all interconnected. And the Lord told me, every realm has a gate. And I thought, what in the world is that? And as I began to pray into that, the next morning I got up and I asked the Lord, Lord, what are you talking about? And I punched into my concordance the word realms and five verses came up. The first of which said this, he hath given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms, in heavenly places in Christ. Chapter six says that the enemy occupies, there's where our, our, our fight, our wrestling is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities in, and powers in heavenly realms. We said this morning, we read it out of Colossians chapter one, that God is reconciling all things to himself, whether things in the heavens or things on earth. How is he reconciling the rebellion in the heavenly realms? It's because you and I are now seated in the heavenly realms with him. And we are to displace the enemy through the blood of Jesus. We do that by being the people who understand that the blood of Christ has silenced the accuser. You will never be victorious in spiritual battle unless it's a settled issue that you are righteous before God by the blood of Jesus. If you don't understand that the shed blood satisfied God and the sprinkled blood cleanses you, you will never be able to use use the wielded blood before the enemy. And that blood actually displaces the enemy and that battle in the heavenlies. In that vision, the Lord showed me. I saw these, that night when I saw it, there were these giant spheres and they were all interconnected. And I saw wisdom realms. I saw some realms with healing, finances. I saw inventive realms and they were all interconnected. And I knew you could stand in a prophetic realm and reach into a healing realm. And you could operate in healing through the prophetic. And I I didn't fully understand what the Lord was saying. And as I began to study the word, I began to see that he feels Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He has given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms in Christ. Jesus has stripped the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms of their authority. He's now seated us with him, according to Ephesians chapter 2. You and I are legally seated. Those thrones have been given to us. But we see in chapter 6, there remains an opposition in the heavenly realms. And the, the, the warfare motif of Joshua, the book of Joshua, that God told Joshua, every place you put your feet is yours. He said, the promised land is yours. Now they had to go in and Take it. And the rest of the book is a a, a record of bloody battles to seize what was already theirs. And it's a picture of the Christian life. Jesus has stripped the principalities and powers, disarmed them of their greatest power, that of accusation. And he's seated us in heavenly realms. And we are to move into those heavenly realms and we're to begin to operate in those resources, healings and wisdom and inventions and finances. We're to operate them and unrelease them upon the earth. The, the very things that the enemy once used to extend his kingdom have now become ours, but we have to seize them. And we do that by the blood of Jesus. 
But it's only as we understand that we are made righteous before the throne of grace, that we can stand, and in the evil day, in the onslaught, we stand and we displace the enemy. And I believe what Revelation chapter 12 is speaking of is there is a day before the end of the age where the church triumphant will so ascend into its place in the heavenlies that the enemy will no longer reside within those realms. That Rome, or Ephesians chapter 6 of the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms will no longer be a valid principle. But they will, according to Revelation chapter 12, be thrown upon the earth. And the time will be short, and the fear will be great. But we will be those not dwelling on the earth. We will be those who are seated in heavenly places, and we will occupy that place from heavenly realms. And we will unleash the power of the blood, and love not our life unto the death. And we'll see the victorious, the victorious church of Jesus finally give Jesus all he died for. Reconciling things, not only on the earth, but also in the heavens. The blood of Jesus is far more than you and I can ever imagine. I want to pray this morning. I want us to just, again, pray for a revelation of the blood. Next week, we're gonna, we are going to partake of communion together. And we're going to take his body and his blood, the body broken for us and the blood shed for us, and we're going to apply them to our hearts and to our homes. So I want us to pray for a revelation. And if this morning you're watching and you need to get right with God, maybe you took a run at the Christian life. You say, I tried that, but I couldn't do it. It's because you didn't come to the end of yourself. And if you will throw yourself on God and cry out to God, God will teach you how to use the blood to cleanse yourself of a guilty conscience so that you can begin to live in the righteousness and emanate the righteousness of God. The fruit of the Spirit will begin to be made manifest through you. If you need to get right with God this morning, I want to pray with you. I want you to pray with me. And I want you to contact us. We want to help you in your walk with God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blood. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came. And Spirit, we thank you that you apply these principles to our life. Now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would touch those who need to get right with Jesus. And if you need to get right with the Lord, just pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I cannot live the righteous life on my own. So I'm looking to what you did for me. And I accept your blood as my salvation. And Father, I ask you, give me a new life. Put your spirit within you, in me, and help me to live up and live in that relationship that you ordained for me in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us that you'd give us a revelation of the blood of Jesus. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.